Well, grab your Bibles or whatever you're going to be looking at the Word of God with and make your way to the Gospel of John. We haven't been in the Gospel of John for a while. Um, in our series, as, uh, if you're visiting with us, we're going through a series called Tell Me the Story of Jesus, where we're trying to get all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're trying to look at them all as chronologically as possible to get the full image, understanding, and the purpose of Jesus' ministry. We're going to be in John chapter 7 this morning. We're going to be looking primarily in verses 1 through 9, um, but we're going to spend a little time with verses 10 through 13. I think at some point, no matter what age you are or what you claim your age is, uh, at some point in time, all of us have experienced peer pressure. Now, whether we've succumbed to that pressure probably depends on who was applying it to us and what the situation was or what they wanted us to do. In our passage this morning, Jesus' brothers are going to come to him and try to pressure him to do something that he knows he shouldn't do. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, I really wanted to be with people. Uh, I really wanted to be accepted by people. And it wasn't a pressure that was put on me. It was a pressure that was in my heart. I was kind of like Ariel from The Little Mermaid. You know, I want to be where the people are. The problem was, in high school, where the people were was typically at parties, and that's where they gathered. And so on one particular Friday night, one of my football buddies invited me to come with him to a party, and he said he would pick me up and drive. And so I rode with him, and I knew what was going to take place there. I knew what the social activity was going to be at this particular party, and I, I told myself, I can remember it, you know, I'm not going to drink. I'm going to go for the social aspect. You know, I just want to be around people. I'm going to just mingle and, and work my way around the room and talk with people. And I knew there were going to be a lot of people I went to school with there because they've been talking about it all week. Um, and I also knew there was not going to be any adult supervision that was going to be at this particular party. And so when I arrived, I did what I planned to do. I just worked my way around. It was actually in a barn. And I just worked my way around the barn talking to different people. But as the night went on, I kept getting asked if I was going to have a drink. <clears throat> and originally, I just kind of shrugged it off. Nah, I, you know, I, I got my water. Uh, I'm good. Um, but I kept getting asked. And the, my friend that invited me to this party and drove me to this party says, Hey, why don't you just take a sip? Just see what it tastes like. Just, just take a little sip. And as he was asking me this, I felt the eyes staring at me, wondering what is the preacher's kid going to do when he's offered a drink. Now, when I was growing up as a kid and we would go through St. Louis area, we'd typically pass the Anheuser-Busch Brewery. And my mom would always say as we passed this brewery, that's where they can or bottle the horse's pee. And you can know that's what they do because they always show off their Clydesdales, and that's where they get their, their alcohol and their beer, beer to be made. And so as a kid, that made, that made sense. That makes perfect sense. I mean, they're in all the commercials and things like that. And so as I'm holding this can and my friend is saying, why don't you have a sip? Well, I didn't know how beer was made. So I was thinking in my head, why in the world would I want to drink horse pee? I knew I shouldn't do it. I didn't come with the intention of partaking of the festivities just to be around people. But again, I felt the pressure. What's he going to do? What's the pastor's kid going to do? What's the, the football and wrestler 
going to do in this moment? And so I, I took a sip. And that led me to finishing a can. That led me to getting another can and taking another sip and finishing that down. And that led me down a road I look back and I regret. Because it went about four years of just struggling to get out of that lifestyle. And it all started with a sip and peer pressure. If you drink, that's between you and God. Okay? The problem is some people can't control it. And it's no different than some of us may have a bad habit of shopping. Some of us may struggle with tobacco. Some of us may struggle with the words that we use or relationships or gambling. So I want to say that if you do any of those things, you drink or gamble or whatever, smoke, whatever, and when you do it, you have this sense of guilt, you need to understand that's the Holy Spirit inside of you trying to tell you that this isn't right. This isn't something you should be doing. And he's trying to get a hold of your heart and awaken you, to revive you, to move out of that sort of lifestyle. Today in our passage, as I mentioned, Jesus' brothers come to him. And they're trying to, or attempting to peer pressure him into doing something he knows he shouldn't do. Obviously, he doesn't succumb to it. But what he does in this little interaction with his brothers is he reveals to us what life is truly all about. We sometimes forget that Jesus had brothers. He also had sisters. We remember he had a father named Joseph. He had a mother named Mary. And typically in the Gospels, when Jesus' brothers or his family comes to him, they become more of a hindrance to his ministry. They try to make him do things that he doesn't want to do and well, can't do because it's not according to what God wants him to do. We know, or we can know, that at least two of his brothers eventually came to understand and believe who Jesus Christ really was, and that happened after the resurrection and the ascension. And that was his brother James and his brother Jude, who also wrote letters that we have here in the New Testament. Well, let's read through our passage And then we'll walk through it and understand what's happening. Well, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secrets if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast. For my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. <clears throat> so to begin to understand some of our passage and the context of what's going on, we need to understand some of the navigational bearings. Our passage says that Jesus is in Galilee. Galilee is in the northern territory of the Jews. Jesus' brothers come to him, 
and they want him to go to the region of Judea. That would be in the southern part of the Jews. We don't exactly know where Jesus is at in the region of Galilee, but most likely he's in the city of Capernaum because that seemed to be where he had his home base of operations. In traveling to Judea, that's where we would find the towns of Bethlehem and in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem would be the town to which the Feast of Booths would be, re- be located. Sometimes it's called the Festival of, of Tabernacle or the Feast of Shelters. It's all the same name, whichever version of Scripture you're reading, it's pointing to the same thing. And because it would take several days, because you have to remember they mostly traveled by foot, to go from the northern part in Galilee down to the southern part in Judea, we know that this festival or this feast hasn't yet started but is about ready to take place. And so let's talk about the feast or the festival for a moment so we can understand why Jesus' brothers wanted him to go down there. There were three main festivals within the Jewish society. There was the Passover, there was Pentecost, and there was the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle or whatever you want to read it as. All three of these festivals were focused on main events within the Jewish history. And since we're dealing with the Feast of Booths this morning, let's begin to understand what this one was about. This feast or festival would take place in what we would call our months of late September or early October. It was a celebration of the Jewish people when they would bring in the harvest for the year. And so they would celebrate that God has once again provided for them. He has given them things that they can survive on. Now this festival would last for eight days. And so it would begin on Sunday and it would wrap up on a Monday, of course, Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath, so there wouldn't be any festivities on that particular day. So it was basically a seven-day festival of celebrating that God had provided the food for the Jewish people. The day would start off, every day of the festival would start off with a drawing of water. And then they would pour the water out to remember how God had provided for their ancestors water as they wandered around in the wilderness. Because that's where this festival came from. And so they would remember that God brought water from a rock. He took them to a place where they could have an oasis. And so they would celebrate that. And then every night, the festival would end with a lamp lighting ritual in which the Jewish people would remember how God, with their ancestors, gave them direction with a pillar of fire by night. And since the festival was primarily focused on the wanderings that we read back in the Old Testament, primarily in Exodus and some of those other fun books to read, the Jewish people would set up makeshift tents all around Jerusalem using branches and palm, and palm trees uh, leaves. And so it would basically kind of be like a, a Jewish woodstock, except they wouldn't have like all the other things that happened at Woodstock back in the day. But there would be singing. There would be dancing. There would be celebration. There would be a ton of food as the Jewish people remembered that God provided for them. God blessed them. God took care of them. God led them and led their ancestors. And as they bring in the spirit of the harvest, remember that God is doing the same thing for us today because he is the same God. There's a few reasons that we read in our passage that Jesus tells his brothers that he isn't going to go to this festival. The first reason is the reason that they wanted him to go. If you were popular and you were loved among the Jewish people, then you were famous. And not much has changed today, but Jesus didn't come to this earth in order to be popular. 
He didn't come to this earth in order to be famous. He came to this earth so people would understand they needed to be saved because they were lost. They were cut off from a relationship with God. And people then, just as people today, don't want to hear that. We want to hear that we're lost or we're sinners or we're cut off from God. We want to hear that everything is good, everything's going okay, and that we have it all together. And Jesus had to deal with that same mentality during his ministry. The underlining theme is that brothers come to Jesus and they want him to go to Jerusalem to this festival. It was supposed to be focused on God, but they wanted him to go so that Jesus would reveal that he is, in fact, a miracle worker that he could do great and mighty things. And in the overflow, what would happen is people became more in awe of Jesus in Jerusalem during this festival. The brothers would get to rise in rank as well. I mean, who wouldn't want to brag about a man who's doing miracles and healing people and casting out demons and say, yeah, Jesus, I'm his brother. We're related. And so they would rise in the ranks with them. So it wasn't for Jesus' benefit that he go, it was for their own. And we can know this because John gives us a little insert there in verse 5 that not even his brothers believed in him. Another issue on why Jesus didn't go is given to us in verse 1, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now with this series, we've been able to get a more details from the other Gospels The Gospel of John doesn't necessarily give all those details that we've been looking at so far in this series. And what's unique about the Gospel of John, if you sit down and read it, the Gospel of John begins in the beginning. I mean, like Genesis beginning. And then it gives us some of the teachings and some of the healings of Jesus. But by the time we get to chapter 7, we're actually six to seven months away from when Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem for the final time at Passover. And so John gets in the beginning, he gives us some lessons, some teachings, some miracles, and then he just jumps to the end because he wants to get to the reason and the purpose that Jesus came, and that is to save sinners. John's led by the Spirit to give the groundwork for the Jewish religious leaders and their hatred towards Jesus. Particularly because... He was willing to heal on the Sabbath. You can look in past chapters. Jesus spoke about his his equality with God, that they were one. He refused the Jewish people to be made their king after the feeding of the 5,000. He declared that he was the bread of life, pointing back to when God provided manna. And he had teachings about eating of his flesh and drinking his blood. Jesus came to save people, but in the process, we have to remember he ruffled a lot of feathers. He made a lot of people angry. Matter of fact, in John chapter 6, verse 66, after one of his teachings, we're told that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus, being God in flesh, he would have known what was coming. He had been aware of what is going to happen in the next several months. The final reason that Jesus does not give in to his brothers is found in verse 7. And it's a little cryptic. As his brothers tell Jesus that he should go, Jesus delivers a little truth to them. The meaning of verse 7, the world cannot hate you, 
but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. As Jesus understands that his brothers are still attached to this world and they're still living for the things of this world, therefore they can freely go to Jerusalem with no fear of attempt on their life. They can go knowing that they're not going to be harmed, but Jesus knows that if he goes now, he's not going to have that same promise. And it's just a little sub-point that we get from verse 7, is that when we attach ourselves to Jesus and not to the things of this world, the people of this world that are attached to the things of this world, they aren't going to like it because they love the darkness and we're children of the light. There are three things I want to point out through our passage this morning. Something we learn about God and something we learn about ourselves and where our hearts should be. The first thing is about the Father's glory. The whole point of the Feast of Booths was for the Jewish people to remember how God had provided and protected their ancestors as they wandered through the wilderness and how God was still providing and protecting them as they brought in the harvest. The entire focus of this festivity was to bring God glory. It was to worship him. It was to put him on the spotlight. And Jesus' brothers come to him, and they want him to go to this festival to prove himself. Prove yourself. We've heard of these things that you've been doing. Why don't you go down there? You know there's going to be a lot of Jewish people there. Why don't you prove it? We see that in verses 3 and 4. The word works in the gospel of John is the word he uses when he's referring to miracles. Now, Jesus' brothers didn't believe Jesus was who he said to be. John lets us know in verse 5, they just wanted him to go. Why don't you go put on a show? Why don't you go show them what you got? They figured if people, what people are saying about their brother Jesus was true, then Jesus, if you got it, flaunt it. Let it be out there. Of course, when we read through the Gospels and the experience with crowds and other individuals that Jesus has, when they wanted Jesus to do this sort of thing, Jesus never fell into the trap. He never fell into that temptation. The brother's request is very similar to the temptation that Satan brought to Jesus after his 40 days of fasting. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God. He wanted him to prove himself just as the brothers wanted Jesus to prove himself in this moment. And Satan's was, then turn these stones into bread. The quest of brothers, again, wasn't for Jesus' benefit. He already had disciples. He already had followers. When everywhere he went, people would gather and they would listen and they would watch and they would see what he would do. The request of the brothers was for their benefit. Again, in the Jewish community, notoriety and prestige and honor were a very big deal. And so if they got to go with Jesus and he actually did what they wanted, that's my brother. We're related. And this is what we need to be aware of when it comes to anything we do in ministry. What are we doing it for? Are we doing it for ourselves or are we doing it for God? Are we wanting people to see what we can do and how we sing or how we can teach or how we can preach? Are we putting God on display? 
I'm not saying we shouldn't give each other words of affirmation, but the goal, everything we do in this church, everything we do for ministry, the goal is to bring God glory. It's not about the pastor. It's not about the worship team or the deacons or the elders or any other ministry team. Because you know what? If, if God didn't empower us with his spirit, then there's no way we could do the ministry. There's no way we could do eternal kingdom work. And so it's kind of ridiculous if we try to take the credit for it. When he's the one that's given us the power to do it. The second thing we see is all about the Father's time. Jesus says that a couple times within our passage. Jesus tells the brothers it's not his time to go to Jerusalem, not his time to go to this particular festival. Jesus understood something his brothers didn't. There were people in positions of power in Jerusalem who wanted him dead. We learn that in verse 1. They didn't like what Jesus preached. They didn't like what Jesus stood for. They didn't like the claims that he was making. They didn't like that the other people were so enamored with him. And they particularly didn't like it when he called them out as hypocrites. Jesus tells his brothers in verse 6 that his time has not yet come. This is what he's alluding to. The Passover would be six to seven months away. And Jesus knew that was the time that God had set aside since the beginning of time for he to be the ultimate sacrifice. And so he's trying in this moment to get his brothers to understand, though they may have the same biological mother, they are not the same. Though they may have came from the same family, they are not the same. And here's the I don't know if Jesus' brothers knew his story. Uh, scripture doesn't let us know if Mary or Joseph told the other siblings, hey, <laughs> let me tell you about your brother Jesus and how this all came about. We can assume <laughs> that Jesus was the favorite. <laughs> I mean, it's the son of God. <laughs> we can know because of Jewish culture that he definitely would have been the favored one because he was the oldest sibling. But we don't know if the brothers knew how it all began. So Jesus in this moment is trying to get his brothers to understand, you know what, I'm different. He tells them in verse 7, the world cannot hate you. And the implication is it can't hate you because you're a part of it. You're too attached to this world. And let's know but the world hates me. Because his brothers were still living for the world. They were still living for what the world could give them. But Jesus knew the plan. And Jesus knew the time. He wasn't going to rush it. And he wasn't going to step out of God's timing. And I think that's hard for us at times. To step or stay in God's timing. We pray and we have faith. But sometimes we want God's time be on our time and on our schedule. When the Hurchins knew that God was calling us to Stratford, we were ready. Some of y'all were here when they cast the vote, and we were told that we were in, and we knew this is where God wanted us to be, all the interactions we had with the pastor search committee and other individuals that belong to this church family. And so we were ready to go back that next Sunday after the vote was cast and tell the church that I was currently passionate around, hey, look, God is calling us to move. He's calling us to a new ministry. The problem was God kind of put things on hold. We knew it had been confirmed, 
We knew that God had revealed it clearly to us over and over again. The problem is, as it is today, the housing market in Stratford is quite fierce. And so we had problems finding a house, and that was a prayer we had, like, God, we know this is where you want us to be, but we got to have somewhere to live. That'd be nice. It doesn't have to be something spectacular, but we got to have a roof over our head. We've got to have a place where our kids can sleep. And so we found the house. Just by chance, well, we know it wasn't by chance, God led us, and we found the house where we currently live in, and we loved it. I mean, I knew that's going to be the house we have to go after when we walked in. The first thing James says, that's where the Christmas tree goes. I mean, you're kind of like, all right, I guess we're buying a house. Um, and so we began working with the bank. And God affirmed us that this is the house because as we looked at the house, there's another couple who's going to look at the, the same house later that day. And the guy who was selling the house called me and said that they love the house and they have all cash down. Like, what? Stinks. And so I said, okay, I appreciate it. We'll, we'll keep looking. If you hear anything, let us know. And then he calls me that weekend and he says, well, I was talking with this couple and they heard that you're a minister and they heard that God was calling you to Stratford to preach at a church. And so they came to the conclusion, let them have it. And so I don't know if it's like scary to bid against a pastor, but I'll use it if I can. <laughs> and so we moved in and we were, read, or we were ready to get here. And the bank, as if you've ever bought a house, the bank makes you go hoop after hoop after hoop to get all the paperwork done, and there'll be one day we're like, yep, yeah, we got everything we need, everything looks great, and then there'll be a couple days later, we call back, oh, we need this document as well. Oh, we need this tax statement. And again, our, our timing, we were going to tell the church that we're moving, and we were going to be here in two weeks, and we were going to take on the ministry here. We were going to start serving right away, but yet God's timing says just hold on. We knew it was his plan Yet it wasn't quite his time. And those can be frustrating times in our life because when you know what God wants you to do and what he's telling you to do, but it's not coming to fruition quite yet. That's because it's about his time, not our time. After all, he invented time. Another frustrating aspect about God's timing is when we want something to happen. It's just like in our heart, and it's, it's not a bad thing. It's not something that would be harmful, but it just overwhelms our heart and our mind. But the problem is it becomes frustrating because it's not manifesting itself. And so what do we do? We try to do it our way. I've shared this before, but that happened with Jamie and I. When I first saw Jamie... She's not in here, so I'll say it. She was glistening in the August heat from coming in from cross-country run. I said, that's a girl I want to meet. And so I did. I used her roommate as my doorway uh, to begin a conversation. And once I met her and I got to know her, I said, I want to know her more. I want to hang out with her. I want to spend time with her. And so I did, because I interrupted her time. 
And I forced my way into her life. I wanted to date her, and I wanted to be a part of her life. I wanted her to be a part of my life. And the thing was, she wasn't having it at all. (laughs) It was not on her time schedule to be hanging out with Mike. Matter of fact, she nicknamed me Stalker Mike. And I tried to force my way into her life, and she only pushed me away. And I prayed about it. I prayed about it. God, you got to change your heart. You got to help her see the light. How good of a person I am. You got to help her get on my time schedule. You got to help her understand she wants this relationship. That didn't happen. What I've learned about that is my heart and my mind were more fixated on my relationship or lack thereof or wanting a relationship with her than they were on my relationship with God. And so those things had to change And I had to get back on God's time schedule, and obviously things worked out. We're married almost 21 years now. When it comes to God's time, it requires patience. It requires perseverance and requires faith. And sometimes I've found when we actually wait on God, we actually pray sincerely to God, and things aren't happening, what I've found in my own life is a lot of times God changes our heart and our desire, and our want. And what we thought was such a big deal or something we really needed, we realized, eh, it's really not that big. And we did back on God's time. The final thing we see in our passage is it's about the Father's will. And sometimes it's hard to know what that means. I and mean, we throw that word around a lot in church, don't we? Oh, it's the Father's will. God's will be done, you know. So it's hard to know what, what exactly... Does that mean when we say it's about the Father's will? And some people define God's will, their Father's will, as God's wants, which is fine, but it isn't really about what God wants. God doesn't want something. He wills things. And everything throughout history and everything that is going to happen until Jesus Christ's return is going to be according to the will of God. So we pray, you know, God's will be done. We're told to do that in the Lord's Prayer. And the word will actually means desire. The problem with that is in our English definition of desire, desire means to want something or to wish something to happen. And that's not God's will because God doesn't wish things into existence. Okay? So that's, that's a hard word. The other word that we can read as will comes from the bulk of Paul's writing in the New Testament. In Romans 9.19, it says, For who can resist his will? And there in the Greek, the word is better understood as plan. So God's will, God's desire, is that his people would live according to his plan. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. The word will there is the word we read as desire. And so God's desire is that his people would be sanctified. That word sanctified means set apart, implying from this world, just as Jesus is letting his brothers know that he is set apart from this world. He is not attached to this world. He's attached to the people of this world, but he's not attached to the things of this world. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, it says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And the word desire there in verse 7 is the same Greek word that we get the word will from. And so when we read through the Lord's Prayer, what we're praying is that God's desire would be done. So what does God desire? He desires all people to be saved. He desires for us to be a part and in his plan. And so that's what we're saying. We're saying the Father's will is that we are wanting to be in his will, so we're wanting to be a part of his plan. That's where Jesus is. He says, I am about my Father's plan, about his will, and I'm not going to deviate from that. I'm going to remain in that. Now, the other aspect of God's will is it's according to God's plan. Again, Jesus isn't going to move out of God's plan because he's known the plan since the beginning of time. The Gospel of John opens that way, that Jesus was with God in the beginning. And so he's known the plan. He knew the timing of when it was going to happen. He knew the will of God, and he's going to stay in God's timing and in God's will so that he can ultimately bring God glory through the cross and the resurrection. And so we may say, well, how do we know the Father's will? And the simplest way to do that, but it, sometimes it takes time, is to be in the Word of God. Because God will never go counter to His Word. Because it reveals His will. And reveals his plan. And so if we want to know, am I in God's plan? Well, is my life aligning with God's word? Now what is interesting about this whole exchange here between Jesus and his brothers is in verse 10, which we did not read. Verse 10 tells us Jesus did, in fact, go to the feast. What's up with that, Jesus? It's obviously not God's will to tell a lie. <laughs> so how does that align with the will of God? Well, Jesus went to the feast according to the will of the Father, not according to the will of the brothers. The brothers wanted a public display. And Jesus, we're told, went in private. He didn't go looking for a parade. He went to go worship and glorify the Father. And it was not the Father's will for he to go with his brothers because he knew what his brothers wanted. And we'll look at those next couple of verses here in a couple of weeks because the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke tell us about some of the traveling arrangements that Jesus made from Galilee down to Judea and Jerusalem and some things that took place there. But I want us to go back to 1 Timothy real quick. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. There might be someone here this morning that needs to hear this. God desires God's plan, His will, what God wants, all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. And there might be someone here this morning that needs to hear this. God desires you, God wants you. And he wants you to be a part of his plan. 
God wants you with such a passion that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to die on the cross for your sins and to rise again so that you might be forgiven and be given eternal life. And this is the gospel we preach. That God created you for a relationship with him. That's his plan. Problem in that plan is our sins separate us from that relationship. It causes a breach. And sometimes we think, well, I'll just be good. I'll just do good things. That's got to be worth something. But the problem is, no matter how good of stuff we do, it does not solve the sin problem. And so God sent his son Jesus Christ to come to this earth to pay the price for the sins of the world. By dying on the cross and then rising three days later to show he has the power and authority over death, the power and authority to forgive sins, and the power and authority to grant eternal life. And the Bible says anyone and everyone who believes in that will be saved. You may be here this morning and that's what you need. You need to get back on God's plan to be in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone. The Bible says when you believe it in your heart, you have to confess it with your mouth and you will be saved. If you're here this morning and that's something you know you need to do, I'm going to be standing down here. I'm going to invite you to come down. You just have to say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want to be a part of God's plan. We'll pray together. We'll celebrate together. But maybe you're here and you're realizing, I've been trying to make it about my time. I've been trying to make it about my glory. I haven't been living in God's will or plan. I've been living my plan. And you just kind of need to bow before the Father and ask for forgiveness. We're going to pray together. I'm going to invite Nick to come up and lead us in a song. If you need to come, I'm going to invite you to come. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son. Thank you that you love us. And you made us a part of your plan. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that has yet to accept you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that your spirit would come upon their hearts and you give them courage to walk down this aisle. And today would be the day of their salvation. But Lord, let us be a church and a people that bring you glory and you alone. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and your faithfulness. Thank you for loving us. We thank you for this time we've been able to gather in your presence. And praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.